Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake." but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Any tennis players in the room? Tennis players? I took my first tennis lesson, first and only tennis lesson, in 1989. I was in ninth grade. I'd grown up playing basketball and football and baseball, and basketball was my sport um, until my dad decided to put me at, take me to the YMCA and drop me off after school for tennis lessons. Six weeks of tennis lessons, and I absolutely fell in love with the sport. In the late 80s and early 90s, there was a massive tennis star by the name of Andre Agassi. He was the coolest dude. He was, he was a rock star. And, I mean, the way he dressed and the way he was, I just, I wanted to be like Andre Agassi. Grew my hair out like his. And uh, then my parents moved to a different town that did not have a tennis team. So I asked one of, the, one of the teachers, would you mind starting a tennis team for us? And so we started practicing tennis. And we got a whole bunch of people together, and we put together a tennis team. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to be the next Andre Agassi. And sure enough, I beat every single person in that school who had never played tennis before from my one lesson. I was just a little bit further ahead of them. I had a friend in the next town over who was a legit tennis player. He'd been playing since he was a little kid. And he went to a school that had a legitimate tennis program. And uh, he took lessons all the time. But I started talking trash to this guy. Because everybody I played at my school, I beat. I'm the number one seed. And sure enough, we had our first tournament. I could not wait. I had a little secret. And that secret is... I've got a great first serve. I mean, it's fast as hard. No one can return my first serve. So there we were, center court, me and my friend Clay, and all the school, both, both teams are surrounding, watching what's going to happen. And in the warm-ups, I didn't show him this serve. I didn't show it to him. I held back because I knew it, it would just intimidate him. He might just walk off the court, but I wanted everybody to see this happen. And so, sure enough, I reared back, perfect first toss, perfect first serve, left-hand corner, maybe the hardest serve I've ever hit. And you know what happened? He just slammed it right back down the line as if it had been no big deal. You see, even though I had never seen anyone return a serve like that, he returned serves like that all the time. Judgment day to my tennis game had come, and I was embarrassed in front of the whole school. 
There's a, a famous quote, maybe you've heard it before. It's by a Greek poet from the 7th century BC named Archilochus. It says, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We don't. We fall to the level of our training. All of us like to think that when push comes to shove, when a leader needs to rise, when something needs to happen, that we've got what it takes. We, we, we want to show, we want to know deep down, we tend to think that we've got what it takes. But if Archilochus is right, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. Often reality hits. It's the thing we bump into when we find out we're wrong. And we fall to the level of our training. If that was true on judgment day for my tennis game, is it true for judgment day for all of us, the actual judgment day? When the end of your life comes, will you be judged by your good intentions? Or will you be judged by the level of your training? Let's walk through the passage that we heard today. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. If Paul is right in Galatians, then Christ is to be formed in us. If he's right in 1 Corinthians, then we do need to grow into the image of Jesus one degree of glory to the next. But how does that happen? And especially, can that happen when the whole world is coming to the end, to an end? Today's sermon is entitled, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Mark 13, as Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said, uh, and they said, uh, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. In another gospel, we know that Jesus, maybe just before this, has looked at Jerusalem in tears for what's about to happen, the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is leaving the temple after a, a few days of going back from the Mount of Olives to the temple and teaching, back from the Mount of Olives and to the temple teaching, and he's leaving for the last time, and he's declaring judgment on this temple. Why is this significant? Well, consider Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel had these apocalyptic dreams of what would happen when the Messiah would come. Ezekiel eleven twenty one says, but as for those whose hearts pursue their desire for abhorrent acts and detestable practices, I will bring their conduct down on their own heads, just like we prayed a moment ago. This is the, dec the declaration of the Lord God. Then the cherubim, these spiritual beings, sometimes we think of them as angels. They're not specifically angels, but they are these spiritual beings with wheels beside them, lifted their wings. This is what Ezekiel is seeing in the dream. And the glory of God, the God of Israel, was above them. The glory of the Lord, of Yahweh, rose up from within the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. So in Ezekiel's vision, the glory of the Lord representing the judgment of God stops in Jerusalem, then goes east, and the glory rests on the mountain east. This is exactly what Jesus has just done. This prophecy came true, at least in part, in this movement of Jesus from the temple back to the Mount of Olives, 
looking back. Jesus has just declared judgment on Jerusalem. Why? I thought Jerusalem was good. Well, yeah, there were some good things about Jerusalem. I thought the temple was good. Yes, there were many good things, but they pointed to him. They pointed to Jesus. They were fulfilled and completed in Jesus. They were never meant to be an end in and of themselves, just like a fireplace is never meant to just be a fireplace without fire. They're meant to hold the fire. Jesus was that fire. Ezekiel was prophesying both about the uh, impending doom of Babylon and of the coming Messiah, but also about the coming of Jesus. And Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem has become Babylon. You missed the Messiah. Verse 3, while Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. So this is the meeting after the meeting. You guys familiar with the meeting after the meeting? There's the meeting where everybody has a meeting, and we all decide things. And then there's the meeting afterward to say, what did you just say in that meeting? What did you mean by that in that meeting? That's what this meeting is. And it doesn't work very well in the workplace. It kind of causes division. But these guys are close to Jesus. And so so, uh, he's saying, okay, yeah, I'll I'll talk to you about what this is. So listen, he asked them, or they asked him two things. There are two questions here. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when all these things are to be accomplished? Mark 13 is constructed. If you look, look, look through the verses of Mark 13, maybe later today, you'll see that it's constructed in two-fold scheme of tension and paradox, alternating between the immediate future, to which Jesus calls these things, and to the end time, which Jesus calls those days. So I want you to have in your mind these things and those days. These things is verses 1 through 13. Then he transitions to talk about those days, the end, what's going to happen at the end. Thus, verses 14 through 27. Then he goes back to these things in verses 28 through 31. You can go back and listen to the podcast. Nobody's writing this down. Uh, second, then, then the last thing is verses 32 through 37. Jesus' second coming and watchfulness is those days. Two questions. When will these things happen? In other words, when is the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem coming? And Jesus basically says within this generation. Anybody know approximately what, how long a generation is, biblically speaking? Anybody know? How many years? Anybody know? I heard 20, 30, 15, a little bit higher. 40. 70 is a great, a great uh, guess, though. 40, about 40 years. So when is Jesus speaking? Around 33 AD. When was the fall of Jerusalem? When did the temple actually, when did this prophecy come true? Almost exactly 40 years later, within that range of 40 years, the temple was destroyed. But remember our big question. We're seeking a friend for the end of the world, a friend to train us to become like Jesus. What do we see? 
What is Jesus training us to do in these days? When you see these days happening, and when you see those or these things happening in those days, what do you see? What is Jesus asking us to do? I think we see four things. Let's walk through them. The first thing is found in, uh, let's see, verses 5 through 13. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. Mark's gospel is usually thought to have been written in a, uh, to a church in a setting that has experienced violent persecution. So think of this as a documentary that's presented years later. Many of us have watched 9-11 documentaries, and maybe you watched a Y2K, another end of the world documentary, uh, a 2008 uh, housing crisis documentary. We want to know what happened so that it doesn't happen again. Mark is, the Gospel of Mark is written to present to this group of disciples who saw violent persecution. And at the very least, his readers or hearers were, were aware of what happened in Rome under the emperor Nero. What happened? Well, Christians had been tortured, crucified, fed to lions, set on fire, and then set on fire to serve as a torch in the night. So you'd come into this city that was lit up, and you'd see that it was lit up by burning Christians. So this is a church that that's their friends that have been burned and tortured. That's their friends that have been hung out in the public square and impaled or crucified, tortured. This community also may have been people that got away from persecution because they were not among the boldest and the bravest. They remained because they had broken under pressure. They had defied or denied the name of Jesus. And yet, here they were. Think about God and his goodness that would inspire someone like John Mark to take the sermons of someone like Peter and preserve them first for this group of people who had denied Jesus or had hidden. They had done what Peter had done. They had denied Jesus, and yet, here they are presented with this beautiful, priceless treasure. And they're asked this question, what do you do? How do you live for Jesus now? That's the question Jesus is answering. The first thing he says is, don't be deceived. When you see all these things happening, and by the way, most of the things that we heard in Mark 13, they sound very familiar to us right now. Nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars, of war. All of these quote-unquote acts of God that are happening, uh, these, these global tragedies that are happening, it's, it sounds very, very familiar. Do you know why it sounds familiar? Because it happened then, and it always happened. When you read Scripture, Scripture's telling you what happened and what happens. It tells you how they followed Jesus, and it invites you to say, how then should you follow Jesus? Scripture prescribes certain things, describes certain things, and is silent on certain things. And in the silence, we're to step in in faith as a community and say, okay, how are we as 21st century disciples of Jesus to become like Jesus? 
How are we to gather under the name of Jesus and the authority of Scripture and the safety of community and follow Jesus together? How can we become like Jesus? And the first thing Jesus says is, don't be deceived. Why does he say don't be deceived? Well, he says don't be deceived because it's easy to be deceived when you see all these things happening. It's easy to receive an alternative narrative. David Brooks, who I love, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic author. He wrote a, an, an opinion piece in the New York Times this past week. And he's talking about how there's this revival because of what's happening in Ukraine, this revival of the gospel of the Western narrative. We're believing in the gospel that we really can save ourselves. Progress works. Technology works. Education works. If we can just, if we can just educate people and resource people, then, then, then everything will be okay. And guess what? Jesus says, don't be deceived. This is a false narrative. This is a false gospel. These are false messiahs. Do not be deceived. And guess what? Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, okay, get out your calendars. Let me tell you when I'm going to come back and fix everything. Go hold up, just buy a bunch of stuff, and, and, and get everything you need to protect yourself. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, don't be deceived. The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials adversity, and suffering. One of the things I'm keenly aware of is that all day, every day, the world is trying to disciple my kids. I've got a 13-year-old daughter, a 8-year-old son, and a 5-year-old son. And all day, every day, there are these amazing, beautiful, appealing narratives to them that say you define who you are. It tells them you look to yourself and define who you should be. It tells you that happiness is just that t-shirt away or that pair of shoes away. It tells them that it, 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 uh, through highlights of, of sports that my kids, my boys just love. They love, they love watching ESPN with me. They love YouTube. They want to be YouTubers. But all day, every day, the world is trying to disciple my kids, trying to shape them into someone. Do you know what? I wish I could look at them and say, do not be deceived. You, can, you really can become like Jesus, Grace, Jackson, Bronson. You really can. And you know what else I notice? All day, every day, my world is trying to disciple me. The promise. Every time I make a purchase, I believe in a promise. I purchased this shirt yesterday. I believe the promise that it would make me look good on Sunday morning. But guess what? It's true. It did. <laughs> but it has a half-life. Next time I wear it, I'll be like, okay, how long ago did I wear that? Is it okay to wear it again? Maybe I need another shirt. Every time I buy something, every time I click something, every time I stop the scroll, there's a promise on offer. Do I believe that promise? Jesus says, don't be deceived. The second thing he says is this. Don't be alarmed. Or maybe you say it this way. Stay calm. 
He says, don't be alarmed. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, there are really two different uh, categories we find ourselves in. Some of us obsess over the news. First thing in the morning, we got to know what's next. What's the latest? We talk about it, and we talk about it again, and we heard something new, and now we tell somebody else, and we obsess over the news, and we've got to solve this thing. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't obsess The other place we fall into, the other temptation we can fall into is we're apathetic. We can just say, it's the end of the world. Forget about it. Let's just have fun. What's it worth? It's all going down. We might as well live life to the full. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What a place to do it to, right? Santa Barbara, California. I'm so glad I'm here with you for the end of the world. Jesus said, stay calm. And the, second, the third thing he says is be on guard. Or the, maybe another way to say it is be faithful. If you're feeling apathetic, Jesus says, don't feel apathetic. Be faithful. In 1 Timothy, Timothy told, uh, or Paul told Timothy this. He said, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. Listen to the way Paul says what he says about the end times. He says, people will love only themselves. You know what this phone tells you? This phone tells you you can curate a world that's just for you. Everything just for you. Your likes. You don't want to be friends with that person? No big deal. You don't want to date that person? No big deal. You don't, you, don't want to ha- you don't want this kind of an ad? It's okay, okay, just you, all you. You don't like these kind of cars? No big deal. Jesus, uh, uh, Paul said to Timothy, in the last days, people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others, have no self-control. They'll be cruel, hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Sounds like 2020, doesn't it? Don't give in to that voice. It's not worth it. If Jesus really is king and you really are his, guess what? We've got work to do. There's still a mission. Jesus is still the head of the church and we are still part of that church. Some people are sitting around waiting on an act of God, and God is saying, I'm waiting on you to jump in and participate. I'm waiting on an act of you, an act of faithfulness of you. Don't be deceived. Stay calm. Be faithful. And that leads us to the next one. Jesus says, preach on. In verse 10, it says, it's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. How are we to do this? Don't be deceived, stay calm, be faithful, and preach on. Well, how do you do it? You seek a friend for the end of the world. Who is that friend? In verse 11, it tells us, Jesus says, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. When you're put on trial in the workplace, when you're put on trial with that family member, 
Or maybe somewhere in the world there's someone who's being put on trial. In fact, absolutely right now, somewhere in the world, there are Christians that are being put on trial for their faith. You know what Jesus promised? He promised, number one, that it would happen. And number two, he promised, if you will abide in the Spirit, he will give you the words to say. You know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say when. He didn't say when he was coming back. He said, here's what to expect when those days come. Here's what you should do. Don't be deceived. Stay calm. Be faithful. Continue to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel in the way that you live. Preach the gospel in the way that you serve and give. Preach the gospel in the way that we gather. And then number five, abide in the Spirit. And watch, be alert, watch, look with longing expectation, for Jesus really is coming. The disciples said, Jesus, is that happening now? When is that going to happen? Those days, when is that going to happen? This is what Jesus said. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody wrote a book in 19, that said 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. If you would have asked Jesus in 1987, are you coming back in 1988? I think he would say, I don't know. Is Jesus coming back? Ask me right now. Is Jesus coming back? Is what's happening in Ukraine a sign that Jesus is coming back? I don't know. Yes, he is. Is he coming back right now? I hope so. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How long, O oh Lord? But until you come, we won't be deceived. We're going to stay calm and be faithful and preach on and abide in the Spirit. I want to invite the worship team to come. We're going to respond in worship. We're going to take just a couple of moments. And those of you who are uh, longtime members of the Reality family, you know what this is. This is carpet and communion time. We have the elements of communion available for you. If you'd like to spend some time uh, worshiping Jesus through communion, I invite you to do that. If you want to come spend some time on your knees in prayer, I invite you to do that as well. But let's end by responding to Jesus' call. Let's end with worship. And as we do, I just want to ask you, what if? What if you have everything you need right now to become more like Jesus? What if your relationship to Jesus, you becoming more like Jesus, has not depended upon an outcome in the world? What if it's not dependent upon an outcome in your bank account or in your relationships? What if you have everything you need right now in this moment? Tim Keller says this, I'm going to judge my circumstances in light of Jesus' love, not Jesus' love in light of my circumstances. Don't be deceived. Stay calm. Be faithful. Preach on and abide in the Spirit. Let's worship.